Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. Like the Metalens nanoparticle and photonic integrated circuit, the terahertz band is a member of the small but mighty group of optical components, devices, and regions. Well known for its role in biomedicine and detection, the range of terahertz applications is considerable. Applications span material science, spectroscopy, chemical classification, and optoelectronics. Our guide through the terahertz band on all things photonics is Dr. Mona Jarahi, professor of electrical engineering at UCLA and winner of the 2022 SPIE Harold E. Edgerton Award in high-speed optics. As head of the terahertz electronics laboratory, Dr. Jarahi specializes in terahertz and millimeter wave electronics and optoelectronics, as well as microwave photonics and ultrafast electro-optics and terahertz imaging and spectroscopy. Our conversation with Dr. Jarahi extends into those areas. First, we quest to find out why the terahertz band is so consequential and how it ties into the wider field of photonics. With news editor Jake Saltzman, Dr. Jarahi discusses the state of the supply chain, her start in physics, and the path to device commercialization. What you will ultimately hear is a well-defined course for continued advances in the terahertz domain. In our second segment, we are joined by Drs. Richard Crocom and Ellen Maceo for a preview of the inaugural Photonic Spectra Spectroscopy Conference to be held virtually April 12th through 13th. With expert curation from thought leaders including Drs. Crocom and Maceo, as well as the Koblenz Society and the Society for Applied Spectroscopy, the PSSC features nearly 20 presentations in four distinct tracts. With an expert's perspective, our guests introduce each track of the conference open up the program, and reveal trends running through the field of spectroscopy. Today's episode begins in the same place as our intro. While the terahertz band may be small, its power is immense. Here is Dr. Mona Jarahi with Jake Saltzman. Yes, terahertz band is a small portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, however, it is having very unique potentials that are not fully exploited yet. And these potentials can really transform our lives in ways that we cannot even imagine. On one hand, many chemicals have unique spectral signatures at terahertz frequency that allow you to identify them and characterize them in a non-invasive way. Also, a lot of optically opaque materials are more transparent to terahertz waves allowing us to reach environments that are visually not accessible for various imaging and sensing purposes, and in a non-invasive way. Please note that the energy of terahertz photons are way lower than X-ray, UV, even visible photons. So they're non-ionizing and non-destructive to biological tissue. Talking about biological tissue, in fact, terahertz waves are highly absorbed by water molecules and as a result, they get very high image contrast that allows to identify between malignant and benign tissue, infection, inflammation, different uh, degrees of burn wound uh, and blood vessels. Also, as we move from radio frequencies to terahertz frequencies as signal carriers, obviously higher data rate communication systems uh, would be enabled. 
so there is a very broad and diverse range of applications that could be enabled with terahertz. Within your line of um, terahertz research, uh, I don't mean to pigeonhole you, but let's talk about terahertz optoelectronics. That is your area of focus, one of the areas of focus. And what we're seeing more and more on the research side are we're seeing terahertz photoconductive antennas, certainly semiconduction, time domain spectroscopy. And these are all relying on chemical elements and, and alloys. Um, but before some of these applications happen in extreme environments or in clinical settings, they're happening in the lab, right? And we've gone through, we're still going through a pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about the current state of the chemical element supply chain for your work and whether or not it's been impacted by the last couple of years? Right, that's a very interesting question. In fact, when we talk about very specialized research supplies, research components that we might not be sharing with other fields, I haven't noticed a major change in supply chain during the pandemic. And in that regard, very specialized tools we needed were still available to us during the pandemic. But that being said, more common electronics and photonic components that one needs in any lab, uh, those were really, really affected by this supply chain issue. Uh, we definitely have much longer lead times, wait times for a lot of products, and that's hard not to notice. Um, I mentioned terahertz antennas, and I'll say now also terahertz optics, terahertz spectrometers. These are commercially available products. And yet a lot of your recent work considers topics in machine vision, plasmonics, uh, trainable materials, a lot of different application areas that your research enables. I'm wondering if product development or commercialization is an area of interest for you, um, because it is a little bit interesting to pursue that from a research path. The answer is yes. In fact, we have a lot of interest. Uh, we have uh, recently spun off a startup company from my group that I co-founded with one of my former students. So uh, you are right, there are a lot of commercial products available out there, but they don't address all the needs that we need out there in industry, in real clinical settings. And uh, we try to target those deficiencies. For example, most of the time domain terahertz imaging and spectroscopy systems are still single pixel. So one has to mechanically scan the object or the imaging system to get a meaningful image for a meaningful application that obviously limits the scope of applications. For example, applications in industry really need high throughputs. So in our company, we are trying to address those needs with plasmonic photoconductive antennas that we develop in my group. Uh, we have the luxury of uh, building large arrays and basically having, for the first time, a focal plane array being used in a time domain spectroscopy system to allow these high throughputs to be offered to customers. The road to plasmonic photoconductive antennas runs through physics. That's the step back that we take, because it is a critical inroad for the innovations happening currently in the terahertz domain. For Dr. Jiraki, a central figure in that innovation, advances in electronics and related devices served as inspiration. They led first to the intersection of engineering and physics, and then to more focused targets in quantum mechanics, electromagnetics, and semiconduction. 
Physics was always my favorite subject at high school, and I really liked it because I was fascinated by how electronic gadgets worked, and physics was able to give me some basic explanation about those concepts. My childhood and teenage years coincided with the time that we witnessed a dramatic advancement in computing and communication technologies. I was very uh, amazed by how the size of computers and cell phones kept shrinking, but the performances got better and better. So I really wanted to be a part of this journey. And that's why I chose electrical engineering as my major for undergrad and grad studies. But physics is not detached from engineering curriculum, especially as I started to do research, it was really required to really understand the underlying basic physics of these devices from a semiconductor device physics to quantum mechanics and electromagnetics. So it has been always my bread and butter uh, during education and research, and it continues to really give meaning to our research. In other ways, the ascent to terahertz optical electronics has been a self-propelled journey. Terahertz optics, and in broader strokes, the entire terahertz field, is not typically covered in conventional undergraduate education. Yet concepts in the field are widely applicable to rising scientists with expertise in other areas. At the graduate level, the interdisciplinary dynamics of applied research in the terahertz domain can flourish. Conveying that message to students is another aspect of growth in the field. Since I work in the terahertz field, and terahertz field is less known for undergrad students uh, in the sense that it is not present in general, uh, the terahertz education is not really present in undergrad curriculum. I try to include concepts that are helping to better motivate and educate students about terahertz in the undergrad classes uh, that I teach. Also, I have developed a graduate level course specifically focused on terahertz. Even graduate students working in other areas are not very familiar with the field. And uh, usually when they take this course, they understand how their knowledge can be really applicable to the terahertz field, given the very interdisciplinary nature of the topic. Another common context for topics in the terahertz regime is the notion of the terahertz gap. This area, between radio waves and the infrared, has long struggled to find associated applications. As a result, it has become a frequent source of intense research, though without the same degree of practical application. Bridging the terahertz gap has become an accessible pursuit, so much so, in fact, that many argue the term should no longer be used. The current focus, Dr. Jarahi explains, is on increasing accessibility more than uncovering a long-standing mystery. In this way, there are parallels to electronic and photonic devices. Handheld and integrated devices, wearable technology, and chip-scale technology have entered the realm of possibility. I think where we are at this point of time is that while we can uh, really access the entire part of the spectrum, the tools, the imaging and spectroscopy tools are still relatively bulky, complex, expensive, and that has limited their usage mostly in laboratory environments and industrial settings. And to really make the further revolutionary advances similar to ones we experienced in photonic regime, electronic regimes, uh, many decades ago, uh, to the benefit of society, to really bring the technology to everybody's home, 
we have to uh, look into platforms that we can monolithically integrate it, terahertz devices and systems to really make an impact. So we have all witnessed how bulky, power-hungry early computers were transformed into high-performance microchips that now we are using in every aspect of our lives, in our homes, cars, cell phones, health monitoring systems. I'm hoping uh, we will soon witness a similar technological revolution impact terahertz field to really start having these handheld gadgets or even microchips that we use in our cell phones, in our cars, homes, to really do health monitoring with new functionalities for environmental sustainability, food and drug quality control, safety screening. So I I think that is what really needed to get there. And I think we're in a very good point of time to make all those happen. I don't see very big fundamental physical roadblock along us. Integrated circuits and integrated fabrication technologies are advanced. Nanotechnology is advanced. We have great tools offered by artificial intelligence and uh, quantum technology that can help us push the envelope further. So I'm hoping for that big jump to really bring the technology to everybody in a low cost and compact way. So we've knocked down many of the pillars uh, to a point where now it's just the work that needs to take place uh, and we can do it. If you take us back in time, what were some of the key accomplishments that, what were some of the barriers that needed to be overcome with regards to to terahertz, um, I suppose, terahertz optics? Personally, uh, I'm sure everybody can uh, line up uh, their challenges in this field, but personally for me, because of the nature of my work that I work with plasmonic nanostructures, the fabrication, really working at the edge of capabilities of uh, fabrication instruments was a practical challenge that, of course, required a lot of time, patience, uh, and basically determined students to uh, really develop processes that you could really build what you knew is needed to make an impact. Uh, especially, uh, I mentioned our activities toward building large focal plane arrays for high throughput terrorist imaging systems. Uh, that is a different level uh, where you not only want to fabricate nanostructures with very specific uh, geometric properties, but also you want to manufacture them on large scales. And cost of these kinds of manufacturing is a real challenge. So coming up with ways and adapting know-how from uh, those who do large-scale nanomanufacturing was another practical challenge uh, that we were and we are still dealing with to be able to have very high-throughput, low-cost manufacturing processes for these devices for the same goal of bringing them in low-cost, compact settings. On the research side, The interdisciplinary nature of the terahertz field is great for attracting young talent. In terms of components and devices, the speed at which the field is moving has driven rapid advances to critical technologies. These can be found in electronics as well as in photonics. Terahertz is a very fast evolving field. Uh, I uh, really love to always walk in conference exhibits and see what are the new things, what are the new tools. 
there's always a lag uh, between what we see in research papers and uh, research presentations and the real uh, product appearing in market in few years. Uh, and the pace has been fast in the terahertz domain. So, you know, terahertz is very interdisciplinary field. So there has been a lot of advancements from the electronic side where basically Schottky diode mixers, frequency multipliers have been trying and uh, harmonic mixers have been trying to bring up frequencies from microwave side to terahertz. Now they are very robust, basically high performance components, sources, uh, detectors, modulators available. Uh, on the photonic side, there are a lot of basically specialized lasers that are now available, especially for time domain spectroscopy systems, femtosecond lasers, uh, lasers that uh, offer uh, continuous wave light beams with terahertz beads, with very sophisticated control electronics that we use this for, we use them for different spectroscopic applications. I don't personally work uh, in the area of quantum cascade lasers. I've been following the progress. It has been amazing. And I see products coming out, uh, very clever ways to basically tackle the cooling requirement that they need for quantum cascade lasers. There are now products out there. Another product that I'm personally very excited about using it uh, are these uh, microbolometer arrays that are really good infrared cameras, but still in terahertz uh, allows to uh, do very cool imaging applications. Many, I, I'm sure I have uh, forgot uh, many of very essential tools that we are using right now. That's why I'm taking them for granted. Uh, but it is uh, very fast progressing and getting better developed. The current scope of the work taking place in UCLA's Terahertz Electronics Laboratory is forward-looking. Research pursues target new devices, for which Dr. Jarahi says ought to be considered a different level of impact. Much of the current work in the area of light manipulation focuses on quantum optical materials. There is a major focus in my group to really come up uh, with a monolithically integrated terahertz optoelectronic platform. One of the challenges that has been out there was that the optical components we need in these systems are not compatible with each other. On one hand, semiconductor lasers and amplifiers need very high quality semiconductors. On the other hand, to produce ultra-fast dynamics in photoconductors, we need short carry <laughs> lifetimes and we have to uh, introduce defects in the substrate. So we are now looking into new quantum optical materials that can potentially serve as this backbone. We are studying the underlying physics of how photons can be generated, amplified, modulated, and detected in these materials. And at the end of the day, we, we are working on building new devices and integrated systems to really bring that different level of impact that everybody can hopefully benefit from in the future. Today's episode is sponsored by Comsol, the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling, imaging, and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing and communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com. It's time for the Luminary Minute, 
a segment where Photonics Media looks back at a pivotal figure in the history of optical and photonic science. This episode will be talking about C.V. Raman, for whom the Raman effect is named. Raman was a brilliant student, having graduated high school at 13 and college at 16 with honors. At 19, he joined the Indian Association for the Cultivation of Science and became the first author from the Institute to publish an article in the journal Nature. In December 1927, as a professor at Rajabazar Science College, Raman wrote a letter to his student and collaborator K.S. Krishnan as news of Arthur Compton's Nobel Prize for Compton Scattering was announced. In the letter, Raman stated, If this is true of x-rays, it must be true of light too. I have always thought so. There must be an optical analog to the Compton effect. We must pursue it, and we are on the right lines. It must and shall be found. The Nobel Prize must be won. The pair began experimenting in early January and sent a manuscript on the molecular diffraction of light to Nature mid-February, which was then published at the end of March. Raman's Nobel Prize, however, would have to wait until 1930. On April 12th and 13th, Photonics Media invites all guests to the inaugural Photonic Spectra Spectroscopy Conference. This virtual event, featuring nearly 20 sessions in four distinct tracks, aims to highlight advances in the burgeoning field of spectroscopy, exploring a range of applications and use cases. A focal point of the conference is to introduce possibilities to apply spectroscopy in traditional and non-traditional settings, the ability to incorporate spectroscopic methods into a wide range of R&D, data science, and commercial projects has established new pathways for the technology to enter the mainstream. The conference program was curated in collaboration with the Koblenz Society and the Society for Applied Spectroscopy. Richard Crocom, principal of Crocom Spectroscopic Consulting and a past president of the Society for Applied Spectroscopy, and Ellen Maceo, principal consultant at Maceo Consulting, president of Koblenz Society and a past president of SAS, helped develop the program. Doctors Crocom and Maceo join me now to introduce the Photonic Spectra Spectroscopy Conference. So the first ever Photonic Spectra Spectroscopy Conference, the PSSC, is coming up here in the middle of April, April 12th and 13th, and we are fortunate to be joined by two of what we call our thought leaders who have helped curate this event, the Society of Applied Spectroscopy, as well as the Koblenz Society. We are responsible for that. We have Richard Krogram and Ellen Mazeo. Here with us today. I appreciate you both finding the time to speak with us. And I want to, to get into some of the principal themes that guests and attendees can expect to see featured here. Uh, we'll start with you, Richard. Spectroscopy is a huge field. And so we've tried to span a wide range of topics from the component level through to the most sophisticated ongoing research. So at a component level, we're talking about emerging technologies, and some of those are going into embedded spectroscopy. And at the very high end, biospectroscopy is a very active field, and really very sophisticated instruments and devices are used there. And then in the middle of that, we have data analysis, which is required to turn spectra into information. So Vibrational spectroscopy or optical spectroscopy has moved out of the lab and, and the research domain into new and applied areas, biospectroscopy, spectroscopy in the field, spectrometers in, in consumer products. And as I say, all of those need data reduction. The, the researchers, the operators need, need information, not spectra. So data reduction techniques are very important. And a lot of new buzzwords are being used here. And so we, we want to clarify that area as well as part of this uh, webinar. 
all goes into making this as serviceable. Turning thought into action, I suppose, would be one way of framing it for our guests and attendees. Ellen, a big part of this, as Richard touched on, is data analysis and interpretation. And that is a key focus, um, because without that, you just have spectra. Can you speak to some of that for us? Over my career, what I've seen, I've worked for a lot of different organizations, and I've seen a lot of engineers who build stuff not considering what happens to the data after they build it? And is that data turned into information that a user can actually make a decision on? You know, we spectroscopists who practice spectroscopy look at the spectra, can draw a conclusion. You don't expect that from a layperson. And one of the things that I've seen fairly recently is the whole attitude that, oh, AI can fix it. AI will fix anything. I thought it was very important to set the tone for, A, what all these words mean, B, how the techniques are used, what the data is to go into all of this, and what your outcomes can be. That overarching theme winds its way into the entirety of the conference program, and there are four tracks. Richard, uh, you mentioned them. Emerging technologies is one, data analysis, biospectroscopy, and embedded spectroscopy. And within that, we have some hot topics. That's a phrase you, you both used. What are some of those hot topics that guests can expect to see along with the framework of data analysis and interpretation? There are some new optical techniques being applied in spectroscopy and um, sort of frequency cones are probably what one of the biggest, biggest examples there. On, on the biospectroscopy track, there, there's now a huge array of spectroscopic techniques being, being used, lots of variants of Raman spectroscopy. So Raman imaging, stimulated Raman scattering, coherent anti-Stokes Raman scattering, surface and hearts Raman scattering, um, as well as fluorescence. So all, all of these multi-photon techniques are now being applied in um, biospectroscopy. And so we're trying to cover some of those. The other hot topic, as spectrometers and multispectral sensors and other photonics devices become smaller and smaller and lower cost and lower cost, they can be incorporated in, into consumer products. So we want to look at what those technologies are, where they're used, how they're used. And the interesting question is, are we going to see spectrometers and spectroscopic sensors all over our houses in the future and in items that we wear? So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of spectroscopy. It's another thing that is, to use the word embedded out of context, embedded into the program. It is fairly... Uh, plain to see in looking at the program, and you can do that on our website, photonics.com, that representation from industry leaders, not just in spectroscopy per se, but from across the wider photonics industry landscape, really an important aspect of this event. You guys are lifelong spectroscopists here. This is what you do. How is the business of spectroscopy evolving? It's an interesting question because the business of spectroscopy, when I got into it, was almost strictly something that happened in a laboratory with a highly trained scientist who did the experiments, got the data, interpreted the data. Before they even collected the data, they evaluated the devices they were going to use to collect the data and then came up with a conclusion. And it was all in the lab. 
Um, there was a movement oh, 20 years ago, maybe maybe a little bit more, to move spectroscopy out of the lab. And that drove instrument companies, mostly the analytical chemistry instrument companies, to make things smaller, ro more robust, and able to address a particular marketplace. And then all of a sudden, there was the whole MEMS, MOEMS revolution, which has shrunk everything down to the size of a coffee cup or smaller. And that's enabled people to do things that build devices to go places that you might never have considered before. So now that you've got all these small components that you can build into small devices, people, companies, individuals are starting to think about where you can use them that's outside of the normal science area. I have one final question for you both here, and it's a big one. What can uh, attendees, guests expect to take away from the conference? We've talked about the, the expansive benefits, who can be supported by the, the range of sessions spread across these four distinct tracks and topics. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the benefits, though. Um, Ellen, let's start with you. Well, one of the benefits that I see is we as scientists and engineers tend to get ourselves into our little bubble. And this is going to expose all of the attendees to things that are outside of their normal bubble that will get them thinking about other things. Very much like going to a scientific conference live and wandering into a session that you know nothing about and listening to somebody talk about something where the light bulb goes off and says, oh, I can use that. The Photonic Spectra Spectroscopy Conference opens April 12th and concludes April 13th. Registration is free, and guests can register on our website at photonics.com. The event features two keynotes, one on each day of the conference. On April 12th, Roger Weens from Los Alamos National Laboratory and Purdue University will deliver the keynote, Exploring Mars with Curiosity and Perseverance. NASA is currently operating two one-ton rovers on Mars, and the tandem deploys multiple spectroscopic methods for detection. Exploration with the Curiosity rover revealed that there were once long-lasting lakes on Mars, whose sediment contain long-chain organic molecules. Perseverance has an advanced set of instruments, including 23 cameras, and a major goal is to collect samples to be returned to Earth. Perseverance instruments are now studying the first major deposits of carbonates found on the Red Planet. And on Wednesday, April 13th, Rutgers University's Laura Fabris will present spectroscopy for biomedical monitoring applications. Fabris shares recent work with and a general outlook on spectroscopy for biomedical applications, focusing on portable and low-cost implementation used for disease and drug monitoring specifically. Fabris will also share a future-looking perspective on application and technique development. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings@photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.